There was no evidence that governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. Often I, I cover topics such as organized crime, crony capitalism, corrupt politics, things of that nature, things that are truly rackets. But tonight we're going to talk about a different topic, prostitution. And in many people's eyes, they view that as a racket. But I make the argument that it actually should be decriminalized. And really, I've got the perfect guest on the show tonight. Her name is Dame Catherine Healy. She's the founder of the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective. In fact, she was awarded the title of Dame this year by Queen Elizabeth II. And that was in large part due to her activism and on behalf of sex workers and in large part too, due to our efforts for decriminalizing prostitution in New Zealand back in 2003. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian, and hello to everyone. I hope you can follow what I say and <laughs> <laughs> the accent. Um, yeah, indeed, we did decriminalize sex work in New Zealand, as we prefer to call it, and that was in 2003, after 15 years of pushing for this change, we scraped through. We have a parliamentary system and we managed to get through by one vote in the parliament, which makes the laws that govern the whole country. But our history, you know, we started as sex workers in 1987 and we had um, all sorts of issues, as many sex worker organisations around the world could relate to, and I'm sure people in the US um, who are organising as sex workers know, you know, what, what it's like. You know, you're a sex worker and the police are looming rather large in your life. So we had those sorts of conditions, and we had a concern as well back then um, as today about keeping ourselves safe um, having access to labour law, you know, making sure that we could stand up and have instruments available to us uh, to use and mediation, um, and also concern about HIV awareness and prevention um, around STIs and so on. And of course, all of that was difficult for us because it was against the law to do practically anything. We could be a sex worker, we just couldn't ask for money for sex, you know, soliciting. So we'd frequently be um, visited by the police and we'd be checked up on and our names would be taken. I worked in a massage parlour. I also started sex work um, in the late 70s for a small period on the street, um, but went back to sex work uh, in the mid-1980s. So, uh, you know, we had a lot of pressing issues and that galvanised us. It's fair to say um, HIV was really um, a big thing as well as the police 
and lack of labour protections. So we started and we set up a newsletter, you know, they'd call it a zine today, it was one of those things that we dropped around and through the underground networks and so on to, to sex workers. And then the ministry or the Department of Health, as it was called at the time, approached us and asked if we would enter into a formal um, agreement with the Minister of Health. And we reflected on this because we felt it was really important to keep our point of view and our beating heart, you know, around rights and not to become a kind of service provider with no energy for changing things, you know, just taking orders from government. So we said to government at the time that we wanted, you know, we wanted to keep our identity and not be scripted and that we would design the appropriate responses and support for sex workers. And in fact, that all came to pass. But it became obvious too that there was a very strong tension between government agencies. So while on the one hand, we were able to get a condom distribution scheme going throughout um, the, the massage parlours and escort agencies, as they were called then. On the other hand, the police would come in undercover posing as our clients, and these same condoms would be the evidence that um, would be produced to achieve convictions against us. So we threw our toys out of the cot <laughs> and said we can't, cannot have this, you know, this unbearable tension and we needed for government to review the legislation. We were quite modest in our request because we didn't, we, you know, you want to be realistic, you want to keep engaged. Sure. And so that began our process really and off we went building support um, to get that law changed 2003. So, you know, I can sit here now and reflect on 31 years and you know half and half really when it was illegal and now um as an ex-sex worker uh, i listen to sex workers talking about the reality of working in a decriminalized uh, environment and you know like it's it's really interesting because the relationships with the, the police you know who loomed large and were sometimes, you know, definitely not with us. Um, they were definitely working against us. All of that's changed. And on Monday, we uh, mark the occasion of End Violence Day against International Day to End Violence um, against sex workers by releasing with the police a document that we've produced together um, that you know, is about the prevention of sexual violence for sex workers. That's a lot to unwrap there. Um, one of the first things that I think, you know, for a U.S.-based audience that probably stuck out, the fact that the government reached out to your organization to help an HIV outreach program. It's, it's entirely different here in the U.S. I'm sure that you've heard of the anti-prostitution pledge, but... I mean, maybe you're not familiar with the, the politics behind it. This was, a, this was an initiative by the, the George W. Bush administration back in 2003. Our U.S. aid program essentially made this, this rule that any um, NGO group 
that, that does any sort of um, HIV prevention work has to have an explicit or has to sign an anti-prostitution pledge. In other words, they can't condone it in any, in any way. And the, the person who was responsible for that program was a guy named Randall Tobias. And a few years later, his name actually surfaced in a scandal involving the DC madam. So in other words, he was an actual client of, of a very popular madam there in Washington, DC. This is the guy who was uh, responsible for, for pushing that pledge. Coincidentally, that pledge went in place. Well, yeah, certainly, um, no, certainly, I, I, I'm, we're fully aware of this irony and yeah, I mean, it's impacted on sex worker communities all around. Um, you know, the fact that you can't acknowledge sex workers' work and receive funding from that president's um, initiative is, is striking, really. I mean, that, that's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very difficult situation. We're, on the other hand, very free. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I do know that when I visit the States, there's this visa application we have to go through and it's about have you been involved in moral turpitude and you know this the question about whether you've been involved in prostitution so you know i like to think i've been involved in sex work so it's um, right exactly <laughs> well i mean again we, it's sort of this moralistic policy and i, I just kind of find it very interesting because in the same year that your country is going to, in my mind, a move towards progress and, and an evidence-based approach is the same exact year that our country put in this anti-prostitution pledge. And basically, you know, the whole world health community railed against this. You know, every organization from the UN, the World Health Organization, has openly criticized it. Because, I mean, this really is, it's, it's a life or death kind of policy. But it's something that was pushed in in the U.S. basically just, just as sort of like a PR move. It's just a political decision. But again, at the end of the day, a lot of times people might view this as an issue that's, you know, not not very high on the totem pole. But again, this actually really is a life or death issue. The kind of work that you've done and, and other outreach workers have done, it, it's it's very important that you know that these health officials and out, outreach workers, you know, can can talk to sex workers, give them. You know, give them information, provide them. I, I particularly found the example that you were talking about interesting when you were mentioning that you're passing out these condoms and then the, the police are going along and confiscating them. You know, we have the exact same issue here in the U.S. Um, there are a few cities that have started to, to ban police from using condoms as evidence just because, you know, the obvious you know, health consequences, but it's it's still very much an issue. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a tremendous barrier to reporting. We, we note, you know, with um, evidence-based research on 773 sex workers and subsequent research since then, we've recently had someone from America come and do some research into violence and exploitation in the context of decriminalisation. But we note that, you know, the barriers to reporting to the police are removed a lot. Not entirely, because you still sort of, you know, have a bit of anxiety about fronting up 
to sure. report things to any authority. But nevertheless, you know, there's a, a willingness um, on the side of the police to make sure there is there are as few barriers as possible for sex workers to come forward to report if there are difficulties or um, you know issues related to coercion or violence, etc. And you know the trafficking discourse. While we have it in our country, it's compounded if it's conflated with sex work. And I know that perhaps in the US these two things are conflated. So very people much so. prostitution, yeah, very much so. Same, same. And it's really important. We haven't, you know, we've managed to keep those two issues distinct from each other. So, you know, that dreadful conflation doesn't harm, you know, add to the harm that's caused by criminalisation. So, yeah, I mean, it would be very difficult to find even, you know, the anti-lobby here now couch their phrases like, you know, they, they sort of say things like, look, you know, we note that we've got some sex workers working outside our houses on the inner city and there's no zoning legislation. There's nothing we can do to stop stop them. Um, but we don't want to change the laws around prostitution, <laughs> they'll say. Um, we just we just want them to, to pipe down at night, not to be so noisy. And um, how can we make that work, you know? And so every now and again, there's this kind of um, discussion about some areas related to sex workers. But for the most part, you get people saying, I don't, you know, we don't want to change the laws and go backwards. And that's, that's good. Um, we have had attempts uh, and we've had a serious review in Parliament where we prefer to call it the Swedish model because that's, you know, where it, it implies other countries around Sweden are in favour of what's sometimes referred to as the Nordic model and they're not necessarily. Denmark, for example, isn't in favour of what Sweden's done with its approach to sex workers, which is to criminalise third parties, you know, like the clients right. are arrested and you can't have a manager of a brothel as we can here. But we've had a serious look at this in New Zealand and quite rightly the parliamentarians, the lawmakers said, no, it's not for our country. We prefer, you know, total decriminalisation where sex work is, and as sex workers we're embedded, we're treated just the same as any other occupational group. And they, they, you know, like they say, oh, we should have inspectors coming around to check up on the sex workers. And I find that really offensive because, you know, <laughs> you have an inspectorate when you need it. For example, if you have a problem and a brothel's too cold or um, if a brothel operator is, is being exploited, you can do something about that in the same way that you would in any other occupation or area of work you look up you see whom to call um and you know quite often you know somebody will, will come and have a look into the situation to inspect policies and practices just just like you would in any normal workforce <laughs> yeah i would say that for the american audience um and i can point to what i think would be you know pretty darn interesting examples one of which you know better than I do, but I think it was about two or three years ago, 
that um, one sex worker successfully filed what was essentially like a, a sexual harassment claim against a brothel owner? It was, and it was simply that he was upsetting her by what he was saying. He didn't want to have sex with her. He was referring to her in a sexual, an inappropriate sexual manner. And she said, fuck, you know, it's not his role to do that. I come to work. I like my work. I like my workmates. This brothel is, is okay for me. I don't like the way he talks to me. So her case was picked up. Um, we supported her as an organisation through the Human Rights Review Tribunal. He um, was held to account for being uh, harassing her as well as sexually harassing her verbally. And he was fined approximately 12,000, um, maybe 10,000 US dollars, 25,000 Kiwi dollars. And he was ordered to do sexual harassment training. And mm. that, you know, that was a good outcome. And just, just that's a, a tiny example of, you know, just what can be done. We've had another one um, in respect to um, online bullying where a sex worker was outed and she it was a it was a whole set of circumstances but nevertheless she was able to say look actually these things you're saying about me she's called the walking sti and that sort of thing and really inappropriate kind of stuff and um she said i'm comfortable being a sex worker etc but yeah, i'm not comfortable with you <laughs> bullying me like this online and just things where mothers or parents, I should say, of children or caregivers of children feel far more secure. You know, they um, used to worry when it was criminalised that they were not judged as fit and proper people to have children. That is something that, you know, people might carry a bit of anxiety in that regard. But overall, that's not grounds at all to take a child um, off, off someone. So there's been massive changes. And... We need to probably get um, one more change, really, in terms of legislation, which is protection from discrimination, because, you know, it's not all plain sailing um, as a sex worker. You can still be discriminated against. So if um, I was a tax inspector and I went to answer an advert to share a flat, you know, a flat flatmate might say to me, oh, don't like tax inspectors. <laughs> so I can be discriminated against if I was a tax inspector. There's no protection on the grounds of occupation. And the same exists for sex workers. But most frequently it's sex workers who are discriminated against. And we think there needs to be explicit legislation to say that you can't discriminate on the basis of someone um, being a sex worker. We also have hostile legislation in regards to people who come here. So if you're American thinking I'm coming to, uh, going to get, get my ticket down to New Zealand tomorrow and be a sex worker, just think again, because we have um, on the back of anti-trafficking legislation, there was a beat up and the Minister of Immigration at that time decided it would be appropriate to say that you couldn't come to New Zealand 
with the intention of being a sex worker. So that's really caused a great deal of difficulty for people who are migrants here and don't have permanent residencies, for example, students who are studying and are able to work in any other occupation but sex work. So we still have a bit more to do before we can say, look, we've um, created a fair and equitable situation for sex workers in this country. So if you're a foreigner, um, have work papers, you can work in any profession except for the sex trade. So essentially it's mm-hmm. just pushing, it's pushing a certain percentage of the industry underground, it sounds like. Exactly. And, it, it, you know, predictably, all of the uh, situations related to exploitation um, can happen in circumstances where people feel unable to stand up for themselves. So it's, yeah, it's, it's an area that um, is strikingly different to uh, what most uh, sex workers in this country experience. Right, in, in opposition to, say, a domestic worker. Yeah, I mean, and that's really the case with most of um, human trafficking. Most of it, it doesn't pertain to the sex industry. It's, it's really legal work, but often it's a person who's an undocumented worker. And that's where the exploiter, they use that, that prohibition against them to exploit that worker. It, that is sad to hear that, that, that there is, you know, obviously it's not a perfect system and there, there's room for growth. I actually read about the, the case you were talking about with the, the lady who was essentially a victim of online bullying. Yes. It's, um, I found that interesting, yes, that she, she didn't, this woman, um, her husband or her ex-husband had been paying for a sex worker, so she decided to out this person publicly. Um, there's a term, um, I think a lot of the young people like to call it doxing, but essentially she chose not, instead of publicly embarrassing her husband who was cheating on her, she, she decided to, to publicly embarrass the sex worker who, um, but in the end, I think the, the jury did award her damages, correct? They did. Um, indeed they did. And, you know, the judge was very considered and it's, it's just kind of neat to see that, that, um, you know, very, in very serious environments like that, you know, the word sex worker is used and it's respectful and so on. And yeah, it was, it was a very good um, outcome. Well, um, and, and one of the things I'm kind of curious about, because I wanted to, you know, because a lot of this does have to be sort of anecdotal. But I mean, when you look at examples like that, you can obviously see that and again, not every sex worker who, who's been a victim of coercion will go forward. But obviously, at least the laws are on the books to enable a person to do that. And, and I like to juxtapose that with my own country here in the U.S., where in many cases, the people who are supposed to be upholding the law, uh, our law enforcement officers, are the ones who are actually guilty of some of the worst crimes. And by that, I mean... You can look at all kinds of surveys with sex workers and inevitably you'll always find a very high percentage of them are often victims of extortion by police officers. And in many cases, they're extorting them for free sex. Uh, There was actually one specific study by a group of economists at the University of Chicago. They they call their work Freakonomics and, and they do a lot of unconventional studies. 
and I, I don't remember the exact number, but I believe they found that 4% of the sex workers that they studied, that 4% of the acts were actually sex that was given for free to police officers in order to be able to, to stay working. And again, you, you mentioned a little bit about that relationship with the police, and I'm just kind of hoping that you could kind of expand a little bit about that. Just to dovetail into your, um, you know, the, the reference to the research there, we had a sex worker who had car fines, you know, like she had problems um, like speeding with driving. Like or something? Something like that, yeah. Okay. And, but she had also had a relationship with this police officer and he was paying her for sex. And then he kind of wanted it for free when he discovered this, you know, that she had, he said, he, you know, he had an advantage over her. And right. so she came to us and he was prosecuted and sent to prison. Oh, and wow. Yeah. So and another story, which isn't uncommon, actually, um, it's quite a nice one. We had one of our outreach workers was out and about and... On, with, with the street workers and the one of them was saying, look, you know, this guy hasn't paid me. And so they rang, rang the police straight away and the police said, put me on speaker phone and boomed at the, the um, client to pay up or he'd come down and arrest him. And another one actually was in situ where the police officer came by and he, the, the client standing there and emptying his pockets saying he didn't have his wallet. And so the police officer drove him home to get the wallet to take him back to the ATM machine, the automatic you know, money machine. Right. So that sex worker was paid. And, you know, these images... <laughs> And they, the police will tell us, too, quite funny stories. They'll say, oh, yeah, we were driving. We didn't realise, you know, she was working. We parked and they t told us, oh, you're in, in, in our way. Can you, you know, move your car, please? You're blocking our business. So, you know, right. <laughs> a lot of um, funny stories. And it's not to say everyone has a um, Pollyanna approach to relationships with the police. It can still be... Um, issues you know like if you're um, in other communities you might um, have issues in relation to drug use that the police know about and drug use as we all know isn't decriminalized and you know that can lead to a um, quite a provocative sort of relationship so it's just you know it's but overall in, in respect to sex work it's um, a lot healthier Oh, yeah. And, and that's something I was kind of curious about. So you, you're telling these stories, and I, I think they're fairly current. But was this, was this change of events, was it almost immediate after the laws changed? Was it a subtle shift no. in your eyes? It was really kind of interesting because the police um, had different reactions. And, of course, you know, the, uh, it seemed to us the higher-ups were a little bit more um, supportive, you know, they sort of got the bigger picture and the people on the ground were slightly different. Um, but we, we certainly had a few teething problems. So it did take a bit of a shift. Um, and I remember, you know, talking to somebody, a police officer, and saying, look, we've got this problem. And he was like, oh, it's your problem now, Catherine. You know, and he was really sore and he had 
deeply held religious beliefs and you know, he's really bitter about the law change. And so we had to go through um, some of that sort of stuff. But it, now I think, you know, the, the, the widespread cultural response from the police is one of support. And it's just case after case after case where you get the same thing and the researchers have dug in deep to kind of find what, you know, what the issues, what the vibe is. And it, it seems to be consistently that the relationship is much, much better. So, and you obviously had a, a lot of contact with all of the, you know, all these different politicians to make it happen. I'm kind of curious, because this is something that I find here in the U.S. You know, I'm, I'm an outspoken proponent of decriminalization. And here in the U.S., it's almost sort of like a canned response. Society tells us that you can't say that. But once I give a person, say, a rebuttal or two, they oftentimes they'll kind of quietly say, well, you know, actually, I really, I really don't care. I'm actually open to decriminalization. You know, in other words, there's such a strong stigma attached to it. So I guess really my question is, I guess that some of the politicians who were against it in the past, have you seen them actually change as well now that this stigma's out of the way? Yes, and certainly um, there are people who would never believe otherwise and you know they latch on and they dig in and they'll hold that that line um, but certainly there's there's been that softening and I remember speaking to one political leader whose party um, had voted outright against and he said oh it's funny how you see and I had to remind him of this you know because he, he was like oh, he said oh it's funny how you see things in retrospect and you know it was kind of his concession that um what a silly position to have taken really (laughs) to oppose it but yeah i think i think the the, it's it's funny australasia um we're we're lucky with our near neighbors we have new south wales um three hours away by flight um sydney australia where a big population of sex workers, and it's been decriminalised there for 25 years. So, um, but, you know, other parts of Australia are still illegal. Uh, well, they have a mixed kind of response. I shouldn't say illegal. They have legalisation and right. various versions of um, things being illegal and or allowed for. Australia, to me, is kind of the perfect case study. In my book, I pointed to it because you have, you have basically all three different policies within the same borders of the country. And you have this, you know, you have this legalized model where it's highly regulated um, that essentially pushes out most of the population. You have a, you know, a prohibition model and you have a decriminalization model. And what I found really interesting was that in the decriminalization model, that was the area... Um, um, uh, when they tested uh, different sex workers, that was the, the region that had the lowest SD, STD yeah. or SDI rates. And Absolutely. I think con- conventional wisdom would say that the legalized model where there's these rigid testing standards, et cetera, would be the case. But that really rigid like legalization system essentially pushed so much of the industry underground. And I, I can point to there was a UN report they essentially came to the same conclusions with New Zealand. And, and I have the quote here that it was extremely low or non-existent, um, the STD rate in the sex industry there. 
in New Zealand as well. Yes, I think um, that was Professor Donovan's research, and it's um, yeah. I mean, it's it's no surprise, you know, because if you make something legal, you do have a lot of illegal um, consequences. Whereas decriminalisation, you know, is the idea of repealing the legislations. Yeah. So, um, sometimes and, people get confused and think legalisation is a progressive model, and it's not at all. It's um, for us in this in the context of this debate that it is um, that you know it's far more progressive to repeal legislation like brothel keeping, living on the earnings, procuring um, for sex work, and soliciting were the laws we had, and you would have similar things um, with different names, but. Um, all those activities that you need to do to organise, to be a sex worker, a place to work from, a manager to hire you. Um, you know, in a legalised model, usually it's just a small part of the whole scenario that's favoured, and usually that's um, a kind of bigger business model. So, you know, you get to have legal brothels and the sex workers are checked, you know, mandatory testing and... Of course, a lot of sex workers can't find work in brothels. They might be a little bit, um, or they might be too old or, you know, just not fit into that kind of scenario and prefer to work for themselves. Well, in Melbourne, Australia, you have to go through a whole um, hoopla of registration to be able to work for yourself. So a lot of sex workers would not want to be doing that and would, wouldn't qualify necessarily um, and so they're outside of that system and that makes it really tricky if you think about fronting up to have an STI checkup and um, you might be a bit nervous about that because you know the system might pick you up if you like and you would certainly wouldn't declare that you're a sex worker if you're in breach of a regulation so we don't recommend legalization at all it's a very restrictive um, model um, decriminalization is our preferred by a country mile i fully agree um and, and i think again for a mostly american audience a lot of this information is essentially it's pretty foreign to most of us um but i'm, I'm also gonna i'm gonna link um to a study it was um printed in the lancet which is one of the you know top british medical journals and their conclusion was that if you could if you could expand decriminalization worldwide, that there would be anywhere from a 33 to a 44 percent decrease in STDs. And it, and it's really for those same reasons. Um, you, you can you can reach these workers. It really is kind of common sense, but that is after you examine and research the issue. I guess really one of the, one of the final points I wanted to touch upon, um, and you mentioned it earlier is December 17th, the International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers. You know, it's again this dichotomy here that that was started back in 2003. Again, the same year when the U.S. is starting their anti-prostitution pledge, your country takes a very different route. Every sort of real evidence-based research shows that in the countries where, where sex work is criminalized, sex workers face more violence. There was actually a study um, out of the UK, I think it was released this week, and it found that 
sex workers are three times more likely to face violence in the nations where it's criminalized. And again, you've touched upon it, but I was just kind of hoping you could expand a little bit more about um, what you've seen as far as violence against sex workers pre-decriminalization and post-decriminalization. Yes, and I think it's, it's, you know, I want to acknowledge um, International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers, and it was Robin Few and the wonderful organisation of SWAP USA that um, coined this day. And I think, um, you know, the whole thing here in this country is sex workers have a sense of entitlement now, like, damn it, you know, I, I deserve to be treated better. And right. I think that, that comes with confidence, you know, it comes with the, the change in law. You know, I am the same as you. I'm not in that um, criminal tier. Um, you can't um, treat me like this. And so... You know, equally, you know, when, when you're with, I mean, I'm not demonising clients, but sometimes there are people who don't want to be a client, have no intention, and intend to have sex with you, and, or, you know, intend not to pay, and, you know, definitely, when I was a sex worker and it was illegal, and you got to that point of negotiation, you, and, and of course in our country, it was, there was nothing illegal about the actions of the client, the client was allowed to pay for sex, I just wasn't allowed to ask for money for sex. So I felt very much on that back foot. Sometimes, you know, when there were police raids and it was hypersensitive, I'd feel um, a little bit more disadvantaged. But, you know, now, you know, the sex workers, you know, damn it, you know, you, you, <laughs> they're able to, um, and they, you know, they describe situations like that where they might feel like the client's trying to have have one over them and you know they just say well oh, shall I ring the police I'll ring the police shall I you know and right. operators at brothels who faced imprisonment um you know felt pretty powerless under the old laws as well you know they could have been put in prison for five years if they admitted to knowing that they had sex workers working in their massage parlors which is where a lot of us worked and so you know they can do all sorts of things to protect the sex workers now that, you know, they can challenge people if they've been taking, um, if they think they've been taking photographs, whereas before it, it would have been like, well, what can I do about it? You know, I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't contact the police, you know. So it's, it's really a, a, a huge um, part of the benefit of decriminalisation, as well as the obvious stuff related to good health um, you know, common sense stuff around health promotion. Okay. Because I know that you, there's a book that came out recently. Um, I was just kind of hoping that you could, you could talk a little bit about that. Karen Wilton, C-A-R-E-N, Wilton, um, has written a book with stories of nine, nine or 11 sex workers. And the sex workers uh, reflecting on, you know, working now and um, some like myself are reflecting on having worked when it was illegal and so it's a lovely collection and it's um, really, it's you know, there are men and women and um, non-binary, all sorts of um, sex workers are 
sharing experiences and reflecting. And sex work, you know, as we know, doesn't define us. It's a part of us, um, part of what we do in you know, our busy lives. And so, you know, it's quite, quite interesting, different reflections. I would like to recommend uh, people have a look. And it's probably on Amazon. I can't say that for sure because I'm not the editor. Once we uh, finish up, I'll, I'll do my best. I'll get a link because I, I link to a lot of this stuff and I'd, I'd like to link to any information about your organization as well. Um, so if you would just, um, you know, let the audience know a little bit more about your organization, if they want to follow you or keep in touch or wh whatever, whatever you'd like to let everyone know. Fantastic. And um, we don't really apologize for our name because we know our name. And so, you know, our preferred terminology, of course, is sex work and sex worker. And we dob our hats to Carol Lee, Scarlett Harlett, who coined that. But nevertheless, our organisation um, is called the New Zealand Prostitutes Collective. And I suppose one day a younger generation will get around to changing it. And, but we sometimes call ourselves a New Zealand Sex Workers Collective. <laughs> So we're interchangeable. Um, and we are a organisation with, um, you know, we have Facebook and we have a Twitter account, um, etc. And you can email us if you're working on projects and things that you need insight into, or you can do what we're doing now and you can talk. So we have five community centres across the country and we have outreach and sex workers just come in and flop and clear their email <laughs> and do all sorts of stuff and collect supplies and we have doctors and nurses who come in and provide testing for us and it's mostly anonymized so you don't have to say that you're a sex worker um you don't sorry you don't have to give your real name you can just be in your sex worker identity or any identity you like so yeah and we are pushing all the time to make sure conditions are good um, we contract to government. We're also independent from government. We have our own funding that we generate as well. well that's really interesting. Um, and I, I just, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. I really looked forward to this. I was really hoping to dispel some myths and, and just open people's minds to, to some new ideas. Um, so again, I, I just want to thank you for, for coming on the show. Um, and for everybody who's listening, I want to thank you for listening as well. Please share it on uh, social media. Give it a five-star review. And I do ask, if you want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to go out there and grab one of my books. Um, it's a three-book series called Rackets on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So again, I want to thank everybody. And until next time, bye-bye. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to, um, to prosecute. You can have the license. Price is $250,000 plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross of all four hotels in the store. Corleone.